said Will was not mad. Oh no, Matt's back now. <laughs> I thought you'd shake it off. I think, I think with a, I think with a pot of tea by the looks of it. Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd come into the hall because I have better reception here, and I was worried the reception was interfering with the call. But I foolishly left my tea, so I've remedied that. Well, come to an end. So, <clears throat> by the way, as an introduction, uh, I have just um, had a call from uh, uh, Chetan, who is in UK, and we actually did talk about this at a, at a different kind of perspective and detail. Uh, so when that one will, I'll publish it with tomorrow or something. And that, that will be worth listening to also because it has uh, that kind of uh, perspective. It's another way of looking at it. And even if I work really hard at trying to repeat exactly what I told him, it will still be a different talk. <laughs> so we're looking at right effort and, in fact, its relationship to um, other factors and features. So that when the other factors and features are weak, that means then the effort is needed to be strong. But when other factors are um, um, perking up and working correctly, then uh, the effort becomes uh, less requirement. But in any case, you can, in fact, clean out the mind. Ever so much effort it does take, we can clean it out. But sometimes it's like it just doesn't get dirty so much. <laughs> and we like that pretty well. And the other one is, is that when, even when it doesn't get dirty so much, that so much is also really easy. There's like a, a springboard or an easy amount of effort. We could almost call it energetic, and that happens on its own. And I'll show you where that relationship is. And there, then there is another component, and that has to do with our enthusiasm for what we're doing. Now, oftentimes, the enthusiasm does have something to do with drowsiness, like we don't care anymore. And so lack of enthusiasm is, in fact, not only a hindrance in a particular moment, but it's also uh, like a skill that grows over time. As we become more confident in the Dhamma, our level of enthusiasm for it Will, will raise. Um, uh, perhaps a possible word we could use was, would be gung-ho. That sometimes we're ho-hum about something, but over time we get gung-ho about it. Especially if we uh, come to a deeper understanding of, of what's going on. And so this gung-ho quality we can also see as enthusiasm for getting the mind uh, in good shape, to, so get it, to get it unified. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. I had a question. When you say gung-ho, do you mean sort of a, uh, you become the wild explorer? Kind of, yeah. 
kind of yes, that's a good analogy of it. But the important point is that we're enthusiastic for the Dhamma in the sense that we're on a discovery expedition now. We really, really want to know things to their depths. Okay, and it's uh, it's not actually excitement, but it does have the actually the way that the Buddha describes it is is that it comes out of determination. De- determination is the starting point, but the uh, intermediate then is eagerness, because actually determination and eagerness are very close together. But determination has that effort in it, and eagerness has its own effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now we're beginning to understand this relationship about eagerness. But uh, the, the source of the eagerness is determination, and that the source of that determination is knowledge. And that knowledge would be basically the knowledge of the Eightfold Noble Path, and most specifically the knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, or the knowledge of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Once we understand what really is the problem in my life, I really want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's the birth of that determinism, that we become determined. We know that this is the right thing to do. That's, in fact, the third knowledge, and, and it's when we come to understand that no other teaching is like that. Only the teaching of the Buddha has this quality of giving us both insight as to what the actual problem is and a direct method on how to get right out of it with proof immediately that it works and by practicing it over and over again we will eventually change the time scale and what I mean by that is that when we're really little kids that we spend more time in joy and in play and in curiosity and writing on the wall and all kinds of stuff. And, and only occasionally do we feel really bad, like when mom comes in and scolds us for writing on the wall. Well, I just spent 10 minutes of really happy time writing on the wall, and in one minute my mom destroys that, and now what am I going to remember my whole life is not how much joy I had on writing on the wall, but how much I suffered for it, getting caught and punished. All right. In fact, this goes right back to what you and I, um, Matt, had talked about before, and that's the quality of don't um, punish children for their wrongdoing but um, make sure that this is a learning experience for them so they can be rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. Give also, them something better to do. Take yeah. pictures of his writing on the wall and show it to all the family and all of that kind of stuff. That, those conversations I've, I've found really helpful. It's like, and also emphasizing the bigger picture. It's like, what are, you, what are you trying to do with your children? To teach them to be miserable or to teach them to be happy? And if that's the big the big picture it changes how you respond in all of those sort of micro moments well unfortunately the three of us were not raised that way (laughs) (laughs) our parents had older ways 
and wound up with punishments. And so what we, with, what we do then is we carry around those memories of punishment dearly, and so we continue to punish ourselves needlessly. Actually, for me, <clears throat> it, wasn't, it wasn't my parents. I had a very free upbringing. It was much more school. Mm. School, yeah. They'll yeah. Do it. <laughs> they'll do the <laughs> it wasn't my parents. Especially a Catholic school, but any school will do. Every yeah. school I know of is really quite excellent in ruining a child's happiness. Yeah. And not only that, but they present with the teachers in authoritative position, they present that hierarchy of one up, one down, that then the, the young kids who become bullies are merely modeling. <laughs> They're modeling the teachers. Hey, the teacher is a bully. I'm going to be a bully too. As a teacher, I feel like I ought to say that there are schools which don't do that. I'm, I'm very proud to work in one. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll give you enlightened schools of credit. <laughs> Absolutely. We need more. We need more of that kind of school. Yeah. But I relate to what Robert was saying. My my schooling, I look back on my schooling now and I feel like it's got more in common with like 1950s education than it does with the education that I'm providing now. Like it's my education, my primary education especially was <laughs> appalling. All right. So getting back on track then, every kid starts off with a predominant mind moment time frame of spending more time in joy and less time in frustration, anger, upsetness, and tightness. And as the child gets more introduced into the society that's built that way, the child winds up spending now more and more of his time in uptight, afraid, and, and buying in all of the uh, society's bad habits that may or may not be transmitted either vocally or non-vocally. In fact, that we get indoctrinated and nobody ever says a word. We just mm -hmm. begin to look like and act like and feel like they do. We use them as role models. We ought to treat them like dinner buns, but... <laughs> The, um, this, this role model concept then is kind of a trip that we run on ourselves about coming up to our own standards rather than as adults figuring out what's the right kind of standard for me to live up to and then start living up to that standard instead. An example that I would make, make would Instead of living up to the standards that we had thought were correct because of our childhood upbringing, we decide that now our standards is to be of unified mind, to be joyful, to be loving, to be friendly, uh, to be free from uh, dukkha, watch it and uh, look out for it. So now we have a different kind of um, standard to set. But that's only intellectually, because that old standard was all is already there, telling us what to do and how to do it. Mm -hmm. 
and we generally will rebel against it just like we did when we were kids. It's almost like we learned a poem that we didn't want to memorize, but we learned it anyway. Mm. That's it, isn't it? It's like how we relate to that standard. So if we kind of intellectually or consciously create that new standard as you describe, but relate to it in a kind of old, like a, a self-punishing way or a crit or overly self-critical way when we don't meet that standard, then we're still stuck in a kind of old way of, of thinking and a very unliberating way of thinking. It's just got a new, new, new clothes on. <laughs> exactly. And that whole broad spectrum of things is generally what we would then consider as the hindrances. Anything that keeps us from being in this present moment, <clears throat> happy and joyful, and uh, in the state of mind that we like to be in, anything that prevents us from doing that then would be a hindrance. But most of the things that hinder us from being in the here and now has to do with the past, either at a feeling or a thought or a combo of that. But we can, in fact, peel the way that we want to. The question is, how much effort does it take right now to change the way we feel? How much effort does it take to change the way that we think? This is actually part and parcel of the skill development. And that the first skill that we learned in is the skill of learning how to control the breathing. Then we learn how to control the mind. Then we learn how to control the feelings. Well, this learning that I'm talking about, this training process, in fact, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi uses the word training. Um, other words that could be salt would be like uh, um, practice. But this is actually, yes, we're practicing. We're practicing and we're training to make it easy for us to get into a good state. Mm -hmm. I like the word cultivation as well. I like the idea that we can like cultivate certain positive mental stances and attitudes and positions. And mm -hmm. So now you can see how that when we have a fully developed um, enthusiasm, which then takes a lot of the effort out of it, along with a hair-trigger, easygoing effort, because that's been trained. When you put those things together, now it's more like an energy. It's, it's actually the, the spring-loaded jack-in-the-box, and all of it is a pop go and out comes. We don't have to take any effort to grab into that thing and pull that jack out. He's, he's out. He's coming. Okay, this is what we, and it comes out with enthusiasm. And so uh, as we practice, then that means that we can get into those states that, that you were talking about. But then um, one thing, they are variable. It's not the same. We're just walking around in a good state, but that state goes up and down some, and sometimes it goes down and then it's gone. And then we said, what happened? Right. Well, what happened was is that the hindrances came back, some problem occurred, 
and it was able to then knock us out of that state. But as you progress more and more, you will find that those kind of thoughts don't knock you out of it, that you can have that thought and say, never mind, even if it's a couple of minutes later, you can just come pop right back into this state. Once you have the uh, enthusiasm and the right effort and gear with each other. But enthusiasm comes slowly to where right effort is instantaneous. But it is a skill. Can you just get the effort that it takes? It's almost like weightlifting. You know, when we first start doing it, yeah, it's easy to lift the very light weights. But pretty soon after a lot of development, now we can lift dumbbells that are uh, 10, maybe 12 kilos. <laughs> That's a big bunch for a dumbbell. <laughs> um, and so we can do that. That, and that's part of the um, co the confidence building that we know that we can continue to do it and continue to do it. That even sometimes the dumbbell gets really heavy, big hindrance. We can still, never mind, I can do it. I can do it. And so that I can do it attitude that winner's attitude is that what helps with that determination. <clears throat> That's because they know I can do it. In other words, it's really hard to get any determination at all if you don't already have the attitude that you can do it. It's almost like somebody has the attitude that I'm going to pick up that, uh, um, um, uh, let us say, a 100-pound bag or a 50-kilo bag <laughs> of cement and take it over there to the other side. And then when we get our hands on that 50-pound or that 100-pound bag of cement or 50-kilo uh, bag of cement, we wound up finding out how heavy it is and how much effort it's going to take to pick it up. But never mind, we've already determined that we're going to take that thing over there. And so no matter how much effort it takes, we put that thing on the shoulder and we walk over there with it. <laughs> and so this is kind of uh, that determination point that we're determined that we can do this in terms of like determination and how it relates to to kind of clearing the mind of hindrance sometimes it's quite subtle though isn't it because it's not like it's not like a bulldozer it's not just like bulldozing away the hindrance because sometimes you're exactly right my analogy just <laughs> <laughs> well no but a, a much better way of looking at it is like that it's a a, a game of whack-a-mole Whack-a-mole. Yeah, you've seen the game of whack-a-mole. <laughs> what the hell's whack-a-mole? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and one, of, one of the moles that, that you have to whack is the body, another one is the feelings, another one is the mind, another one is this hindrance oh, and okay. that hindrance, and whatever okay. comes up, and whack, I got you. <laughs> okay. But, 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 uh, but I think what Matt's getting at as well is, is that one aspect of the right effort is just enough effort. Precisely. The subtlety to apply just enough. Uh-huh. So here's the question is, how much is just enough effort to pick up a 50-pound <laughs> or 50-kilo bag of cement and carry it over there? Or another question that I could ask for that, how are you going to handle getting arrested? 
here you are sitting in the back of a truck with your handcuffed. What are you going to start thinking about now? Mm. That's what I mean by the 50 kilo. <laughs> Sometimes the things can get really heavy. <laughs> well, I've, I've... And, and the answer to that, of course, is, yeah, hey, I'm going to enjoy the ride. <laughs> and and when you get to the station you just really thank the police for giving you such uh, nice treatment <laughs> nowhere I'd rather be <laughs> nowhere I'd rather be thank you guys you, you're such a delight to be with <laughs> so this is what I'm actually getting at when I'm talking about something very heavy thanks for putting my feet to the fire on that one <laughs> but there are times when things look really heavy <laughs> but is how about just by mistake you happen to wind up being in the custody of the Taliban and they think you're a US spy how are you going to handle that situation that's a heavy situation again yeah well yeah <laughs> Even with yeah. your accent, it's a fake accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there are right. times when it's heavy. The question is, are we going to be ready for that? Sort of, sort of uh, fire drills, sort of uh, um, getting ready for the really heavy stuff. Because sometimes, and in fact, the really heavy duty one, the most heavy one of all. You're going to die. Mm -hmm. How are you going to do that one? Yeah. You can go, yeah. So part of what getting getting ready for life is basically getting ready for death. We're getting mm -hmm. to the attitude that I can handle anything, even my own death. Mm -hmm. And I can do it good enough. I keep... I've got this big thing at the moment going on with me, which is this physical tightening and holding. And when I let that go, the more I can open out to that, the, 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 the smoother the river flows. Would you call that tightening up fear? It's a holding on to, I would describe it as a holding on to self, a holding on to identity. This is, is, is um, this is my familiar pattern of tension. Look at your hands right now. Yeah, well, that's, that, I, I know. Yeah, this, this, this is me. Yeah. Mm hmm. Uh, but that's not, that's not an attack position. That's completely that's a shielding, defensive. holding, hiding. Completely defensive. Uh, I, yes, I'm a tank. <laughs> You're under attack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
but it's but that's it's good their to recognize suffering. that 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 is what that's what's going on with each one of us is you've Most got all the memories of feeling like that you're under attack. Yeah. Yeah. So the moment of death for most of us is something that we fear greatly. But yeah. actually to just say, well, this is happening. Let's go along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Is a completely it's different attitude. Yes, because normally what happens, even if I'm talking about it to students, that's what happens to them inside. Just to, just talking about death is enough to trigger that. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that, but that was the intention. <laughs> was to trigger that stuff so that you can feel it and recognize that it is not appropriate. It's not appropriate right now talking about death, and it's also not going to be appropriate when you're actually dying. Wouldn't you rather enjoy it? As sure. opposed to being all tightened up and afraid of it. Well, you see, that tightening up is instinctual. It's built into our genes. Mm-hmm. That our, our, um, our, our species would not have survived or any species along the way that did not have this self-preservation mechanism built in is not going to survive. It's going to be attacked and eaten and don't care. <laughs> I suppose it's a question of putting that instinct, making it work appropriately for your greater good rather than kind of like taking over and making you miserable, right? Exactly so. Exactly, exactly so. In this, and so we can say it like this, is that if if we um, allow the fear to take over, which is the normal way that it does, then people will have uh, thoughts and, and statements like, I'm afraid. Now, you didn't use that word, but we did get it down to the fact that you felt like you needed to be on the defensive because you were under attack, right? That's the job of the self-preservation mechanism is to signal you that you're under attack. And it comes quick. It's an instant kind of thing. It's an instant reaction because those uh, animals that had a quick instinct of self-preservation were the ones that survived and the ones that were slow didn't survive. And so this instinctual living that we have, uh, we've had it before we were humans. But what we've done as humans is, is now we've got this enormous, enormous frontal cortex that we've been putting, putting to use somewhat for the past 10,000 years, and we've made it in a society that's quite livable compared to how bad it could be. I mean, you think Donald Trump is bad? I can give you some people in the insane asylum who do a whole lot worse. <laughs> and so, um, in the old, in fact, what would be worse that everyone fears is is that the United States government does fall apart. That's not going to happen. Too many people want to keep it going, but it could fall apart, and then things would be chaos. Hmm. Things can get that bad, but they're not. We've got a marvelous society that we live in, and you're relatively safe, except that you don't feel safe. 
we started out feeling okay as children, and then that old mechanism got kicked into the society the way that it teaches children, and to now we become afraid and in the habit of being afraid, and we've carried that into adulthood. So that now the uh, ratio is instead of being uh, 80% in good feelings and 20% in bad feelings, now as adults we wind up being in good feelings only about 20% of the time, and the rest of the time we're working around in bad feelings or feelings that we would prefer not to have if we were mindful of the feelings that we're having. But most of the time we're not mindful of the feelings we're having. This is right, just exactly. normal. Even when you're feeling good, you don't even know it. You're not paying attention. <laughs> well, Robert, what you described in terms of like in practice, you become aware of the fact that there's like a tension and a holding on and like a kind of bearing down. And then you relax that and then more smoothly let the stream take That's you. That's, That's exactly right. Once you catch that, if you can catch it while you're sitting in meditation, and now that we've talked about it and you mentioned it, you know it, so you can be on guard for that. So if that feeling comes up, you can say, aha, I see you now, there you are. Well, I mean, one of the first signs I have of it is the breathing. Uh -huh. Once the breathing starts to become shallow and squiffy and restricted and tight and in here, um, as soon as there's that awareness that comes, and I just almost think of letting go of the eyes, letting go of, it sounds weird, but letting go of the ears, uh, and just emptying, then the breathing just starts happening again. It's all, you, you, you're doing it indirectly. Mm -hmm. Um I suppose it's like you do that in talking about like practice as training for dying. It's like you do that often enough and then at, at the appropriate moment when you when you need to let go, you let go, right? It's like a training in letting go. Yeah, you just jump. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the Buddha did use... Uh, on occasion, but not so much as he did in the beginning. In the beginning, he it was quite common, but later it was more selective, and that is to send the monks to the charnel ground. Do you know what is the charnel ground? Like Basically, burial. it's the boneyard, or it's the combo right. city dump and cemetery. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, we don't have such places now. Uh, I guess people could get into the morgue for some, on some pretense or another, including, hey, I'm a Buddhist meditator. You got any dead bodies for me to throw up on? <laughs> I promise I won't. <laughs> because that's why they don't want anybody in the morgue is because most people don't have a strong stomach for it. And one of my favorite uh, comedy skits is Mel Brooks performing an autopsy while he's got eight or ten students behind him watching what he's doing and his intention is for every one of them to pass out i've not seen that where was that yeah <laughs> it's on the youtube mel brooks autopsy okay yeah okay I'll mel, check that one out. mel brooks autopsy and see what you can come yeah, up yeah, with. yeah yeah uh, yeah because he wants them all to throw up why you know well as he's 
good being Mel Brooks at that point. Uh, but the whole idea then of doing these autopsies is getting in touch with that fear and disgust and icky feelings that we have inside so that we can do it mindfully and know that, hey, wait a minute, that feeling is not so bad at all. I can, in fact, I mean, the guy who's doing the autopsy now felt that way the first autopsy he saw, but now he's actually doing it. If he can get over those bad feelings, so can I. We can learn to deal with these disgusting feelings. And so the way that the Buddha did this, there's actually a sutta, I think it's number four, I need to check on that because I've been giving that number out too often, of the Buddha actually intentionally confronting his fear by going to dangerous or fearful places mm -hmm. and sitting there or standing there so that, and I guess where he was, because I know that Bodhgaya uh, is close to a river, and in those days, it could have been swampy. So I'm imagining a, a tropical swamp with uh, swamp gases and all of that, and so everybody thinks this place is spooky, when in fact it's merely just dangerous. But that's where the Buddha went to deal with his danger or his feelings of fear. And so um, that's something that we can do also. Except that the, we don't have to quite do it at that level because we can bring up those kind of fears without having to go after swamp gas. I mean, a video of an autopsy will really ring your bell. <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said for the real experience. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, if you need a body to cut up on, I, I'll volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> Just give me a few years. I'm going to get me ready. <laughs> be sure to get a plane ticket to Thailand and, and bring a bone saw. <laughs> if you're already dead, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> You seem alive and well right now. I wouldn't want to alter that state in any way. <laughs> well, this is part of the getting getting over those things. Is is that now we can we can talk and be friendly about it, knowing that it's going to happen, and yet it's going to be a normal occasion when it does. But whole religions are built upon the fear of death. I mean, if people weren't afraid of death, then why would anybody have ever bothered to listen to what Paul had to say about heaven? You know, Jesus didn't really invent a heaven, but Paul really sold one. Okay. And he sold it that way. You believe in Jesus and you can go to heaven. Well, why would anybody want to go to a place like that? Especially these Christians. I mean, all the Christians I know, I wouldn't want to live with them up there forever. <laughs> so, um, it's always the promise that covers over that fear of death. Once we recognize that the fear of death has to be dealt with directly, that there's no other way to deal with it other than to deal it with it directly. We can't promise ourselves things or tell ourselves stories 
or find out what's going to happen later or any of that kind of stuff. The, re the direct reflection is, I'm going to die. And that's okay. It's going to happen to us, to everybody. And not only that, but some people say, but I want to be remembered. Well, think about all of the guys we have in history that to remember. I don't hardly remember, maybe one or two or three or five, maybe. But all the other historical figures, I wouldn't want anything to do with them as human beings. Bunch of assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, King Herod, who wants to know anybody like that? Pilate? How about any of the emperors of Rome? I don't think any of them would be worthwhile being around. We have a whole long history of humanity that have not lived up to the challenges that they could have. Mm -hmm. But we can. So we can forget about all of that old history and everything. So that thing of, I want to be remembered, it, it can be like a very unwholesome sort of desire, can't it? Oh, yes, it is. It, it, can, also, it can be, it can be quite... It can be more wholesome. It can be like, I want my actions and my interactions with people and my relationships with people to have a positive, you know, net positive contribution. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that appreciating that kind of like interconnectedness of the world and of life. You know, I, I think I want my, my children I want I want there to be like a warmth and in my relationships with people I want there to be a warmth so that when I'm dead there's like a, there is some positive impact do you know what I mean but like in a really like small way like not in a self-aggrandizing way just in a you know we, we we do have impact on other people and that impact can be positive or it or it can be less positive Yes, but it's not at your point of death that that matters. The no. Point, no, the point of contact when you actually did have a beneficial impact on that person, that's yes. the point that matters, and that's what they'll remember even after they forget that you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody is forgotten anyway. So it doesn't really matter. In fact, I think that that wanting to be remembered after death has not only the quality of the fear of death and then somehow I'm permanent because I live or my reputation lives after death. Mm. It also is closely associated with that uh, uh, name, the issue of name and fame, mm. or I want to be known, or um, in fact, all of this fits into the high fetter that we. Uh, in Pali is called manna, and that we translate that is conceit, the mm. conceit of I am. I, I want everybody to know who I am. It's funny looked at from the perspective of non-self, because um, when you're kind of looking at the kind of intricacies of like consciousness, perception, intention, will, and seeing through them as not self, the idea that your reputation could be self is you know beyond absurd isn't it <laughs> that's right our reputation doesn't exist yeah 
except in the minds of humans. That's the only place that it can exist. Is, uh, and that reputation then uh, I would say for some or ordinary people reputation is really, really important. But that one who is already on the path of the Dhamma recognizes that reputation is not important at all. Mm-hmm. We can easily see that because you can think of a reputation of any kind you want at, a, at the highest quality for that reputation. And generally the people who hold that kind of reputation are not happy. Mm-hmm. People who have a reputation, in fact, want more of a reputation, are never satisfied. I can, the question I can is, when can we become satisfied and can we can become satisfied with no reputation at all? Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you regarding reputation, but do you see the point I'm making about the difference between reputation and impact, like in the sense that I want... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But impact may not be remembered, even though it's of great value, but reputation, you want to be remembered, and you don't care what impact it was. No, impact, I actually, the way I sort of see it personally, is actually, it's a very, like, humble thing it's not it's not a very ambitious i don't what i envisage envisage as a kind of possible positive impact is in fact a kind of very humble one rather than a kind of very big or ambitious i kind of think i know what you're talking about because one of the things that i've had is experience is to recognize uh, the kind of responsibility that I have, knowing how to manipulate people the way I know how to manipulate them, gives me an enormous responsibility that I don't really want. <laughs> I don't want that responsibility. But sometimes it's a nice toy to play with. Well, I mean, the, the Buddha couldn't have done what he had done if it wasn't for his reputation, surely. Say that again? The Buddha couldn't have done or achieved what he achieved without a reputation. Yes, but he could have not had the reputation that he did get if he had wanted it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so... Uh, Right, yes, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 well, yes, precise, yeah, 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 I like that, sorry, I had to get my head around that for a moment. And uh, there's actually a sutta about it, number two, in the twi- number 22 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the simile of the snake, where the Buddha says, uh, though people will uh, revile and dispute and put me down on that account i have no dejection of the heart and mm-hmm. if people revere and uh, uh uh send accolades and speak well of me still i have no elation of the heart on that account mm-hmm. there's a practice in tibetan buddhism where you um i haven't finished the quote Oh, I'm really sorry to interrupt you. I can't see your screen, so I can't read your facial expressions and tell whether you're finished thinking or not. 
Oh, really? Do I need to do something? Yeah, okay. I, well, I don't know what Robert can see. I, I can, can see, see you both oh. wonderfully well. Uh, it's my my slow computer, probably, then. Don't All worry. right, well, I'll turn my camera off and turn it back on again. Hang on, one, two, three. And now it's off. With me, and now I'm turning it back, back on. And it there, wait a minute, one more time. This really is a slow computer. Has it come up yet? Not yet. Not for me. I can only see your icon badge still. All right. Right now, that's all I can see is the icon, too. It might that's be my computer. It's barely worthy of the name computer, my computer. It's, a, it's like a Chromebook, so it's more of a... It doesn't have very much... Oh, well, if you to play who's got the crappiest piece of junk. <laughs> uh, how old is this computer? This computer is probably 15 years old. This one could possibly go into the 15 year old category. So would it be 15? At least 10. So anyway, we, we were deep into a quote that I didn't have out. And so that, that quote is that um, the reason why there is no elation of the heart on account of that is because uh, this has all happened before. I ought to get the exact thing out of it, but the basic is is that it's a been there, done that. It doesn't matter that people uh, praise me because I've been praised before. I know what that's like. I know what the the, uh, the benefits and the uh, trap. And if people have accused me, I've been accused before. And so that's basically once we get experience in dealing correctly with uh, being revered or reviled, then being revered or reviled doesn't mean anything anymore. Been there, done that. No need yeah. for me to feel bad because I'm reviled. In fact, if you get on the internet, you're more than likely will. I don't know why anybody would want to get on the internet when that's all that's going to happen anyway. It's very hard for people to get agreements. Mostly they just give you a bunch of heartache. <laughs> and so uh, when we have the mind then of the Buddha then that we can recognize, well, re being revered and being reviled don't mean anything. Because we've already been there and done that. Now, in that level, what that means is, is that the um, one's right effort when we hear being reviled one's right effort 
on one sati comes to the fore immediately so that we don't have to uh, go the normal old way of feeling bad when we're reviled or feeling good when we're mm-hmm. revered. So this is actually a part of the practice of, of sati. So, and so at that moment, with right effort, if you're being reviled, it would be rather than responding emotionally, it would be to, to kind of inquire whether your behavior or actions or speech or whatever sort of warranted sensia in that way and then to kind of Mm -hmm. deal with with the consequence of that inquiry but rather than just kind of reacting blindly and emotionally negatively precisely in fact robert what we could say is is that that uh reverence that they had for the buddha was because of the way that he handled it when people came to revile him. But there's several suttas about that. One of them is is the guy who gets angry and the Buddha uh, talks to him about, well, you're a householder and you have parties, don't you? What happened if all your guests came to your party and nobody ate any of your food? Who owns the food after your party guests have left not eating it? And the answer is, naturally, the guy owns the, the party food. There it is. It's in his house. He bought it. He paid for it. They walked out. They didn't need it. It's his. The Buddha then says, so is it true with your anger? You have presented me a party, and I'm just not having any of it. <laughs> so who owns your anger? <laughs> Yeah. This, that, that's so marvelous, but he can do that because of the fact that he's got his mind clear, that he's not going to become affected when someone comes to revile. Mm. It's also because he's got his, his ethical behavior clear, right? Because if someone reviles us and we've got also, you know, we're acting... Was red-handed. Yes, I understand. <laughs> exactly so. Then, in fact, that's one of the things that the Buddha says is one of the advantages of having clean uh, behavior mm-hmm. is we have no remorse now for our action that we just committed, and then we will have no remorse for it later, which is exactly where this comes from. Is is that we, if we do something wrong. We'll have remorse later because some Brahma is going to come up and hit us with, in the face with it. It's going to get around. Isn't it amazing how many different over the years, I don't have a long, long list, but certainly the list is impressive enough to know that it does exist, of meditation teachers or Buddhism teachers that have gotten caught literally with their pants down. <laughs> thinking that they can get away with it. And that's almost the number one sin. It's all—it's almost okay, like the Christians, it's okay to steal their money, just don't mess with the girls. Yeah. And so that's um, one of the issues that would be raised right then. In fact, one of the stories is, is that a girl went with a uh, some sort of wooden wheel device claiming that the Buddha had knocked her up. 
but it must have been easy enough to see that she was not pregnant, that she was carrying something. What? <laughs> she went with a wooden sorry, wheel. I'm sorry, I'm being American. When I say knocked her up, I mean she was pregnant. Oh, I, I, yeah, no, I know that one, but I was a bit confused about the wooden wheel device. Yeah, I don't know what it was. I mean, we can only imagine that some girl had some wooden thing that she carried in saying that it was her pregnancy. Oh, okay. And it got exposed. So that was the level that some people would go to with the Buddha. But almost whenever someone would come to confront him with a question about morality or anything else, they would become a follower of his. In fact, there was a Brahmin who was quite upset because he started sending his students to the Buddha, each one asking a question, and each one of them came coming back just long enough to say goodbye, I'm going to go live in the woods with the Buddha. <laughs> and I think he lost like 16 students or something before he finally went to him by himself to the Buddha. So these are some of the stories that are there. I don't know whether any of these stories are true, but it does have the quality that he was quite a master at being able to handle questions and handle people, making friends with them. Yeah. And that would have been that openness, I think. Mm-hmm. Can, can, can we get you back on online, Damrato? Well, there it is. It was online, but it turns out not to be. Matthew, can you see? No. Oh, can you see? I can see. I can see. <laughs> You're on the left now instead of the right, though. Very confusing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So oh, I can see you now. There we go. I can Excellent. see you now. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's get back on to where we were. We, we had just recently left the position about uh, being revered and reviled and the feelings that come with that, which are associated with our understanding of self and permanency, and how that permanency then is the seed of that, is uh, the instinct of self-preservation mm. that brings up fear. So when people become afraid, they want to have a good reputation. If they have a good reputation, if, they, if they've got, got fame, then they have what they call made it. Or even in the mob, they have the quality of a made man which means now that he's safe. But all of this is magical thinking. In fact, the made man is not safe anymore. Now that he's a made man, he's a target. <laughs> and that's also true in uh, entertainment world. Of once you've made it in the entertainment world, you think that you're safe now that you're a star on top, but reality is a whole lot of people are clamoring to take you down, take over, mm. take your place, take your position. It's a very flimsy refuge, isn't it? 
your fame. They're, right. The the real refuges are are slim and few and far between. The real refuge because the refuge of power, the refuge of name and fame, uh, none of those things really uh, fit the bill. But self-knowledge and understanding the fears that we have, understanding these terrors, understanding that we do not have to either go along with those feelings, nor do we have to put up with them. Mm. The first step is recognize I don't have to go along with that. And then we can recognize I don't have to put up with that stuff either. I can feel the way I want to feel. Only when I remember that I could feel the way that I want to feel, because if I don't remember to feel the way that I want to feel, then I'm going to let that old stuff take over again. And then the further down the path we go, the more we, we understand that, yeah, but it's not so likely to take over again as it was in the beginning. So now the effort is getting easier as the skills grow. And as our enthusiasm for the Dhamma grows, now our effort gets really uh, um, spot on, or uh, the jack-in-the-box quality of it, that it just, it pops. It's like I don't have to talk myself out of feeling bad anymore. It just, once I recognize it, I don't have to think about that, and out it goes. So it becomes energetic. I think, yes, though, that you, <clears throat> there's, um, my own finding is, is that you, all of a sudden something will catch you out, though. You think, oh, yes, everything's hunky-dory, I'm just going along nicely, and something will arise out of the blue, and it really rocks you on your foundations. And yep. there's this, uh, for me, combination of uh, disappointment, and then recognition that actually that's the wrong response. Uh, and just then the best thing, it seems, to just be open to the feeling. And to be um, uh, come in contact with one's own humility. What was that last you said? It is a, it's a humiliating experience, but in a positive way. <laughs> okay. Yes. Do you see what I'm saying? I know exactly what you mean now. And you yes. need to embrace that. If you can embrace that, then it becomes a positive mm -hmm. thing. It's a, oh, no, there's still work to be done. There's still filth to be cleaned out. You well, arrogant bastard. <laughs> Oh, I'm no, referring to myself. Yeah. But I'll get you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I can relate to that, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this case, um, we begin to understand that that confidence and that attitude also have a quality of how much effort that it's going to take. That when there's not much, uh, maybe as we've been looking at it wrong in the sense of how much does it take has to do with the attitude about whether you can pick it up or not at all. 
Mm. Like going back to that bag of cement that I'm trying to pick up. If my attitude is it's too heavy and I can't pick it up, then I'm not going to ever get anywhere with cement. So we have to start at that level. This is one of the reasons why the Buddha wants everybody to get over seclusion, to get over by yourself so that you don't have 50-pound bags of cement to pick up now. You've only got marbles that you've got scattered all over the place. Let's go pick them up. Okay, and so getting things um, easy so that we can get some skill at picking things up and throwing them out, picking things up and putting them in their place, picking things up, it means that we can remember that we got to pick it up and then the effort that it takes to actually pick it up. Mm -hmm. Okay, we so we slowly build our strength, as it were. And so we slowly build our strength or we build this skill of sati and effort so that our, uh, together they become quite strong so that then we can begin to handle the really big things like autopsies and getting arrested and getting put in the ground <laughs> without permission. Because <laughs> the big heavy stuff is going to be there, but the question is, am I going to be ready for it or not? The answer is, if I'm going to be ready for it, then let's get ready for it. Let's do this stuff so that we can actually wind up feeling good almost all the time. And when these big, big, big events come, we've got the kahunas to, to handle it. And we know we do. In a sense, you're already dead. Yeah. In a sense, that's exactly right. We're already dead. That's one of the ways of, dis of, of saying it. And, and all and of that, that is liberating. you were doing just dies away. We're not clinging to life anymore. We're enjoying it instead. Yeah. Well, that's when the language is interesting, right? Because if you're in that state, you could call it already dead or you could call it deathless, right? Like that. That's exactly what they mean by that. Another way of expressing it is death has no sting doesn't mean that death is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But what it means is, is that when death does happen, it doesn't have that sting. Mm -hmm. The sting of fear, the sting of I don't like it, the sting of uh, uh, aversion. And so if death has no sting, then there really is no death because that's the only death that really matters is that the pain of death. Mm. If death has no pain, then it's not even a punishment. It's just an event. Mm. So that is perhaps we could go back to the 50 kilo pack of cement. And we could say that there are some things in life. It's like you're not going to be able, you can't get rid of that kilo, that, that bag of cement. You just have to sit next to it and be with it and accept that it's there until the wind blows it away like grain by grain. <laughs> There is an entire level of practice that's, that knows it that way, okay? Um, the way that we're talking about it would be, let's get rid of that bag of cement or get it out of danger or whatever rather than letting it blow away. And we'll go get a wheelbarrow. We'll go get a friend. We will go get a hoe or a shovel. And we'll get that thing moved. And it may take a while, mm. okay? 
And the other possibility is, is that I can go to the gym for a couple of days and then I'll come back and I'll be ready to get that bag of cement. All right. But the other way of looking at it is, is that, oh, I'm just going to let it be there. Like, let's and I'll say, put up it with, with it somehow. Maybe it'll blow away. But and, I'm saying, like, let's say that cement, that bag of cement is like physical pain. Right. Or like something that like you can't, it's not a kind of hindrance of the mind. Okay. In the same way, it's like, it's going to be, or like death, you know, like that death is going to be there. You can't clear it away. You can just change your relationship with it. I see what you're talking about now. I understand what you're saying. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are some things that we cannot change. That's right. I just put that 50-pound bag of cement as something that is not at my limit yet, but there are things over the limit. <laughs> there is a 500-pound bag of cement out there someplace. <laughs> and there's nothing we can really do about it other than uh, sit out on it and have a picnic. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> Use it as a chair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because some things are, are beyond us. We are only humans. And in fact, when I say only humans, really, we the only reason why we think we are as, as great as we are is because we're the best thing that came along so far. But when you look at what we could have been doing instead of what we are doing, our species is pretty low class. <laughs> Considering our potential, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that we are, uh, the human potential is much greater than what we have. And that um, the point that we're missing here is, is that we think that that potential has to do with technology, cities, transportation, and all of those kind of things. So basically what I'm talking about is human civilization in the sense of the way we treat each other, the way we feed each other, the way we friendship each other, the way we bomb each other. That's the point that I'm looking at, that uh, we have not been very good at being humans. Yeah. I'm not sure we've had very long to practice yet, though. Well, yeah, that's why I'm really pleased with what you're doing. You're really coming along great. I mean, we're talking about some pretty deep stuff here. We, I mean, but in terms of, uh, so the oh, you're the talking Buddha... about humans. Well, I would think <laughs> in six hundred thousand years we'd had time. <laughs> I mean, we've had fire that long. <laughs> yeah, but the Buddha's only been around for two and a half thousand years. The Buddha says that this is an old path. That he just rediscovered it. All right. And there's been. Uh, what does he uh, mean by that? Can you clarify that? Uh, first off, let's change the word path to method, because that's basically what we, uh, we are. When we're talking about MAGA, uh, that has um, the, the quality of, of, of method as opposed to the quality of a journey on a path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you could think of then that would be like a method would be psychology. Yeah. Another method would be going to the witch doctor. Yeah. Okay. 
So the Buddha basically is saying that there has been a path or a method available to humanity all along that has these basic qualities to it. And that these basic qualities are predicated on the fact that everybody throughout history, no matter what group or what age or what um, income or society they were in, everybody suffers and everybody don't like it. And that we have been building religions around that point ad infinitum. One religion after another has never solved this basic problem of humans are not happy creatures. The Buddha says there is a method for these humans to be happy and to be delighted and to be uh, uh, living a life that they themselves would be satisfied at having. But that the, what got started, if you can think of it as original sin, was that monkeys didn't train monkeys very intelligently. And when humans, when, when monkeys became human, we still did it out of ignorance. We weren't looking at really what we were doing. And so we did it by habit. So ever how my mother did it, we do it that way too, ad infinitum, generation after generation after generation, with not much new coming along. Least amount of effort. Has, pardon? Least amount of effort. Takes right. no effort to do that. But there's a lot of suffering involved with it a lot of unhappiness and part of it is because of this instinctual feelings of keeping us alive is based upon a um, uh, a uh, let us say a chemical reaction within the body that we experience it and it's got two qualities of it one it's designed to motivate us which means we're not supposed to like it Run away from it, yeah. Run, okay. That's what this whole thing about adrenaline is, is that it pumps you up and gets you ready to run away or to fight. And here we are, all of these dangerous creatures, all dressed up, ready to fight, ready to flee. We've got no place to go, and we've got nobody to fight. Because our, our um, society has, at the surface level, solve those problems, leaving each one of us human beings to figure out that we do not have to figure, follow along on our ancestry to live in the primitive times that they lived in, that our modern society is cool, baby. Why not be cool, too? Now, some people will say, oh, yes, but our society that we have today is really dangerous in some places. And the answer to that is that's certainly true. But every one of those people are also smart enough to get out of that place so that they can find a safe place. But still, they will feel unsafe. How can we get ourselves, number one, into a safe place, and number two, feel safe? That's the dilemma of life. And many of us solve one of them. We get out of our dangerous uh, place, but we don't get out of the feeling of being in a dangerous place. Mm -hmm. And the Buddha they pass to the solution to that problem. So when the when the Buddha said he rediscovered this method, this technique, was he really saying 
that the potential was always there. Yeah. Yeah. The mechanisms were always there. Right. But it, the way that they said it, it's said in a magical way, but that's exactly yeah. the right way to say it. Yeah. It's the potential for humanity to come out of their suffering has always yeah. been there. And occasionally yeah. someone figures it out. Yeah. Sometimes people figure it out, but they don't figure, but they don't understand how to teach other people how they figured it out. This is generally referred to as a Paticca Buddha. But there's other kinds of Paticca Buddhas which do know how they figured it out. They just don't bother teaching anybody because they recognize what a what a <laughs> what a civilization that is. Why should I go bother? Buddha. Huh? What does Paticca mean? Paticca. Yeah, Paticca Buddha. Yeah. They're the Buddhas who don't teach for one reason or another. Right, okay. Like either they don't know how or they don't care. Mm. And there have been many of them. Uh, you could actually, if you want to be generous, you could say that uh, Eckhart Tolle would be in that level. But one thing about him is he knew that he, did, that he didn't know how to teach it, and that's why he started reading some Buddhist books so he could start to tell people what had happened to him because he didn't have a clue before that. <laughs> so... Um, Basically, we had started off on the issue of right effort. And we had talked about uh, enthusiasm for the path that grows. And when that enthusiasm gets really strong, then that helps our effort along, almost to the point that enthusiasm is enough. Because we're so enthusiastic about the path, it doesn't take hardly any effort at all. But that's going to come back and forth. It's going to go in and out. It's going to wane, just like uh, any piano player who's professional will know some days he's got a good day and some days he's not such a good day. So things are going to go up and down. And for piano players, the um, let us say the number of factors are few, but within one's whole life, the factors are, are, are great. Many different things can trip us up. And our job is to be on alert for that through our right effort to make sure that whatever it is that happens it's not going to drag me down into the sewer with it mm -hmm. so that we can truly say it doesn't matter how obstructed the mind gets even if it's a cop <laughs> I can come out of that and I can feel good I do not have to feel bad Do you think there's some value in going down sometimes? Uh, yes, but <laughs> <laughs> going into it enough to see it as dukkha and worthy of coming out of it is as far into it as you need to go. How deep is it do you have to go before you finally say, ouch? Beautiful, yeah. Yeah. Okay, 
that has to do with our level of awakeness. The, the brighter, alert, more awake we are, the more likely we are to recognize suffering as suffering, and we don't have to go so deep into it. Yeah. <coughs> it's so extraordinary how those... Is, yeah, sorry. Pardon? I said it's, it's extraordinary how just a, a, a flash of a, a thought of the past, for example, that uh, certainly I may never have given another thought to, uh, you do start to recognise that, no, actually that was quite unpleasant. I felt that in a negative way. Um, and, uh, yeah. Okay. So with our right attitude, we know that we can, in fact, handle things no matter how heavy they are, but that generally the heaviness of something is a matter of opinion right now anyway. Mm. Mm. Or should I say opinion would be attitude. Mm. An example of that is, is that if I had a student who called and we got to know each other, and then I talked about this sto story about uh, uh, getting arrested by the cops, and then he lays on me, you know, I spent about eight years in prison. I've been arrested dozens of times. I know exactly what you mean, because when I first got arrested, I was really strung out. Now it doesn't bother me at all. I haven't gotten that guy yet, but... I do not expect anything. <laughs> well, you hear you hear about it quite often. The people become yeah, so institutionalized that they want to go straight back in once they get you to commit another crime deliberately to go yeah, back in. Exactly. Yeah, but the inside's better than the outside when you <laughs> get used to it. Yeah. Okay. So the, if you think about it like that, that means that alone is liberating. Mm. That means that we can get used to anything. Including being happy. <laughs> so, what you just said before that right attitude, it, mm -hmm. it changes that relationship that we have with, say, like a thought from the past that comes in. And it, it, if we kind of, if we allow it, if we see it with right attitude, we can kind of show maybe some love to the part of ourself that suffered then, or we can show, you know, there's a way of relating to it where we don't have to, to throw mm -hmm. it out. We don't have mm -hmm. to kind of crush it and throw it away because we're scared of it and how it can bring us down. We can see mm -hmm. it, we can kind of love it and we can kind of let it. Exactly so. This is the point at, uh, in the, the theory of Paticca Samapada is is that when something contacts us hmm. you know already we've gotten so far as to understand that what actually contacts us is not actually what happens it's our interpretation of it based upon our own past experience etc now that. that something does impact us on the inside if we have wisdom at that point in contact mm -hmm. in other words if we're mindful if we can wake up right then then it doesn't matter which of the feelings we have, we can manage it because mm. we caught it when it's little. In other words, if I can catch, if something would normally make me angry, 
and I say it like that. Uh, normally, really what's going on is, is that I didn't like something, and I, let, I allowed that to turn and burn enough to where it did get me angry, which was three or four or five seconds later. Mm. The question is, is that if we can catch it at that point of, I didn't like, I don't like that. I don't like being called a whistle bud. So when somebody calls me, <laughs> so when somebody calls me a whistle bud, I don't like it, but I don't have to get angry. I can say, oh, I just don't like that. And then I can turn it into something cute or funny or whatever. But if we don't understand uh, the, the fact that it's merely a not liking mm. that is actually based in the self-preservation instinct. When somebody calls me a whistlebud, that's almost like you're trying to kill me. I think it's a really important distinction, though, that you make there, because it means that the feelings themselves, because I, I feel like there's a danger with like oversimplistic understanding of this that people can kind of reject can end up can end up uh, suppressing and rejecting a large part of experience, whereas actually it's about a skillful relating to experience and skill and in skillfully relating to experience, you That's end up actually point. letting go of what's not wholesome and conducive to happiness, and you end Precisely. up cultivating what is. But it's not through a rejection or a suppression. It's through a skillful relation. I'm, I'm not even sure that we should uh, hold our noses when we talk about uh, subjugation or suppression of, of thoughts. Um, let's use this analogy. Imagine that you've got a dog that is in the habit of barking at the wrong time lucky here <laughs> and what what we do with it is a combination of getting her attention while she's barking but mm -hmm. as soon as she calls herself off or when she actually begins to turn around and walk away that's when we give her the glad hand right lucky come on let's go yeah and then by the time she gets up on the porch she feels at home and lo and loved and all of that again even though there was that shout out to get yeah. To get, to get away from what you're doing. Okay, so what happens though that I've seen many, many times is when people uh, fuss at the dog, even when the dog has changed his behavior, they continue to fuss. And then when the dog comes close, now they actually want to punish the dog when in fact the dog just did something quite marvelous. He came when he was called. Mm. And they're punishing him for it in the dog's mind, okay, well, that's the way that we treat ourselves also. So think about it from that perspective of, yes, we can call that feeling down. We can say, aha, uh -huh, I see you, mm -hmm. but um, the suppression of the feeling would be the continue of the suppression of the feeling, even after the, uh, the things have changed around or, or turned around. We continue to suppress, etc., when in fact, that's the wrong behavior now. It's not staying up with the flow. Yes. Okay, and so, so people do. So we can let do... the feeling back in, safely. Yes, precisely. 
truth so, contact right relating it to Patricia Stanmupada it's like there's been contact with this feeling with this memory with this whatever and if we can relate to it skillfully it need not um take over wheel of like misery <laughs> that it it could have mm. potentially is it Vedna? Uh, is, that, yeah. is that point you're into, Vedna? Yeah. Right. The word Vedana itself in uh, the Indian languages, according to some of my Indian friends, actually has itself a negative connotation, and I could see that. One, at one time, I thought that uh, that good feelings would be good and bad feelings would be bad and confused feelings would be confused. But now I understand that confused feelings generally lead to sadness or to fear and confusion and doubt. Not liking something leads to ill will and hatred and, and uh, uh, otherness and racism and all of that kind of stuff. But liking something also has a disadvantage of I like it, I want it. I've got to have it, I've got to control it, I've got to, okay. So that's the cycle system that we're breaking up. I don't see any suppression anywhere at all. We're just simply breaking that stuff up before it gets big enough yes. to need to be suppressed. Yes, it's, it's, it's getting in there before it proliferates and before it, it spins a story and before it mm. lands onto mm. all of before it goes all okay so you have the vedana which is the feeling and then the uh, then the tanha which is the craving or the wanting okay and then you have the uh, upadana the actual taking over like anger will take over or mm. um, a feeling of fear will take over it's and we like have the prison been, coming in around right this is the prison we get taken over Okay, yeah. we really grab a hold of something. Actually, the taking over is a bit backwards in, in the sense of we're actually being taken over by taking over. And here's what I mean by that. In South Thailand here, surprise, surprise, we have coconuts all over the place. Coconut trees galore. And yet we do not have any young kids or any old men or anybody ever claiming any of those palm, uh, coconut palms together coconuts. So Nobody no, does that. No Nobody. one does it anymore. Well, and what do you mean by anymore? For centuries, no one's done it. I'll they have he's... trained monkeys. <laughs> baboons. I've seen it in Indonesia. Yeah, this is the baboons that they have here are actually baboons. So the Thai word is ling, and ling is just automatically translated as monkey. But these are actual baboons in South Thailand. We know they're baboons because they've got the jaw of a baboon, they've got the bite of a baboon, they've got the attitude of a baboon, and they've got the red butt of a baboon, and they've got a very tiny little tail where most of the African baboons don't have any tail at all. But this is not a monkey. Not with a prehensile tail. This is no hensile at all in this tail. It's just a tiny little thing. But these guys could scurry right up there. Okay. They've got actually a university. <laughs> I know a few of them. A university for the monkeys. And, and they also is like an auction market. I mean, it's literally a slave trade. And they tra train the monkeys. They have two jobs that they have to learn. Uh, actually, three. But 
uh, climbing a, a coconut tree is not so hard to teach. Figuring out which coconuts are ready is the second job. And then the next job is learning to twist it around so that uh, the spine becomes weak and then gravity will pull it to the ground. But the question is, how did they get those monkeys in the first place? That's where this story comes in. They co the, these, wild, these monkeys are wild. And the old monkeys are smart to this, so who are out in the wild, but the young monkeys will do this. The, uh, the men will take a, a coconut and put two holes in it and then string a rope that's knotted through that hole so that now that the, there's the bigger hole, the monkey can get his hand in, and then the other end of the coconut is the rope that's tied around the tree. So the little monkey's come and he puts his hand into that hole in the coconut and he scrapes around and he gets it. But when he tries to get his hand out, he can't get his hand out. <laughs> He's got to let go of all of that meat and then he can get his hand to squeeze out. But he don't do it. And those little monkeys go crazy when the man, when the, uh, when the, uh, the, the man comes. But they don't let go of the coconut. And we learned that behavior from our ancestors. That once we got a hold of something, we want to keep it. We don't want to let it go, no matter how dangerous it is to cling to it. But well, we have a choice, like the baboons, potentially. What was that? But well, we have a choice, unlike the baboons. We can, right. we can let exactly. it go. Exactly. That's where the Buddha comes along. And he says, you've got a choice. Relax your hand and you can have freedom. Mm. Stop clinging to stuff and you'll be okay. <laughs> Incidentally, I, I thought I'd seen um, Sentry of Self. And I you hadn't. I, okay. I, hadn't, I thought I'd seen it, but I hadn't. And so I watched it the other day. And it's just about all of this. And it's, it is, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Realize yeah. how, how, that, how we've got our hand in that coconut. What century of self? Is it, is it, it, I thought I'd recommended it to you too. Yes, it's on YouTube. Just type in to YouTube, century of the self. And it'll mm -hmm. pop right up. It's a four-hour documentary. By Adam Curtis. Ah, oh, okay. He did uh, hypernormalization and Bitter Lake. And yeah. A whole yeah. lot of others. Really, it's basically really the story good. of industrial psychology. Yeah. And industrial psychology is exactly the the uh, the study of how to build coconut traps for humans. <laughs> so it, it it took our habits and industrialized them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but if we get but so that this is where that whole point about sati becomes so important is if we can see what we're doing, then almost as if, if we can really see what we're doing, it takes no effort at all. Mm -hmm. It's just let go of the damn thing. <laughs> but in the beginning of practice, it's so strange that it does take effort. It takes effort to gladden the mind, an effort to take a deep breath, an effort to remember. And many times, in fact, effort to come out of our suffering because it's so comfortable.
Mm, habitual. It's so interesting the way the like the meditation practice just is the training ground for like living happily. It's mm -hmm. you know that that because the the meditation feels better, feels richer, feels deeper to the extent that you can do these wholesome, skillful behaviors, and in so doing, it retrains you right? Like it trains your mind to let go when it contracts. It trains your mind to open up because it's more pleasant to be in a state of expansive mind than it is to be in a state of contracted mind. It trains your body to breathe. It trains your psyche to respond to that breath in a pleasant, wholesome, skillful way. And it is, it is, it is astonishing. That's beautifully said. I really like that. It's awesome. It's good, Matt. Well, do you guys have any more questions about this thing that we were starting to talk about in the sense of right effort? <laughs> There's got to be a question up there on the ceiling someplace. <laughs> yeah, there it is. <laughs> so what, what the, the conversation about right effort, I suppose it just, it, um, it kind of inspires me to kind of play, playfully approach uh, life and situations with a, like, discernment about when, when to put in the effort, when is it needed, and when to, uh, to ease back, to let go, and to enjoy, right? Because those are the, exactly. sometimes you yeah. need to do one, and sometimes you need to do the other. And when you try to do one, when you should be doing the other, it doesn't quite work. <laughs> well, you have a marvelous toy. Having a whole human being all to yourself to play with is such a marvelous <laughs> gift. <laughs> And sometimes we abuse it, put it to work rather than enjoying it. Mm. I suppose my question about right effort might be, you know, I, with my meditations now, it is, I've sort of increasingly thrown the rule book out and it's, it's becomes this playground. Yeah. Uh, and if I'm not careful... I will, using the book reading analogy, I will drift off and I'm not paying attention to what I'm reading anymore. But, uh, and then I pull myself back. And then there's all these chapters I can look through and there's different books I can pick up and um, I can think about them in different ways and all of that sort of thing. Um and I guess that's fine. I mean, there's it's, 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 it's no particular problem with that, I wouldn't have thought. Or am well, I wrong? One of the problems that I find with books is, is that it's hard for the book to surprise you. Now, I know that authors try that a lot. But um, that's basically what uh, the Dhamma teaching is all about is to surprise the student to begin to say, wow, look up, you know, like, wake up, 
And it's hard to do that with books, because books, all they have is kind of dry information. But Maybe was, not enough jokes. Maybe if we put more jokes in our dominoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's where the openness comes. Uh -huh. So you're, you're, you're looking around the corner all the time. You're not sure what's around there. Exactly, exactly. So this, this is, is kind of what I mean. And what, when uh -huh. you, what I meant was is that um, you can get into this. It's very easy to get into this kind of dream state where you just sit in the corner and you can't be bothered anymore. Uh, rather than getting up off your butt and getting out there and looking around the corner. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is actually an energizing. I mean, the Buddha would not have put right effort in his Eightfold Noble Path if he didn't expect both for you to do it and to get the results of having trained that. Mm -hmm that we do become vibrantly alive. We've come clear, we're taking deep breaths, we're oxygenating the body, we're getting things going, and we're also becoming lightweight. In a way, it's almost like taking the old clunky Ford pickup that I've got and turning it into a hot rod. Some carbonation, please. <laughs> carbonation. No, no, sorry, not carbonation. Car carburation. Carburation, please. Yeah, some more some breathing. Carbur yeah, let's get some breathing going. Let's get fuel injected. <laughs> Supercharged. Yeah. So, so this is the way that we're we're practicing is that we're using these combinations of things to get our energy up and going. This whole quality of getting enthusiastic about the Dhamma is such an, an enormously valuable quality that the Buddha talks about this in the, in the system of knowledges, that this is actually becoming eager for the Dhamma is the sixth knowledge. So we, we eagerly start watching. We eagerly want to stay on guard. We eagerly are inviting sati. We really do want to know what's going on. And so that actually... Um, almost replaces the effort because the eagerness for it is there it almost becomes an energy on its own effortless effort then oh, i don't know who invented that <laughs> but that's exactly what we're talking about that sounds like zen or tibetan or something well it's uh, it's probably the bit in the in the factors of awakening at the point at which it becomes you talk you often talk about when the sati becomes relentless when the mm -hmm. joy becomes relentless when it when it stops being something you're doing and it starts being something that is just done right it's just right uh huh I think the word is unremitting but we'll reuse relentless that'll do <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like siphoning water out of a tank isn't it you suck on the pipe suck on the pipe suck on the pipe and then it starts coming through and it just flows uh-huh exactly exactly siphoning we begin to suck on it and finally we get a mouthful of gasoline <laughs> you know where I've been siphoning <laughs> But yes, that's a, that's a, that's one of the ways of uh, expressing it is 
we have to have the confidence that siphoning works and we have to put in the effort but once we put the effort into it then gravity can take over to a point and that is is that it will go dry again depends mm. upon how long your tube is and how much you're getting out of it so sometimes people will get the siphoning going and then it stops and so they got to start it again over and over again until it and but eventually it becomes easy and it'll last a week or two and then we uh, and then we expect the siphoning to continue on by itself and when it kind of stops then we say well what happened you know well I know what happened you stopped practicing and we're enjoying it too much never mind start again go mm. back in and have the sati and take the effort and it will start to pay off again so that right effort it kind of operates at, uh, on different scales, right? It can operate on a kind of like week to week, month to month scale, and it can operate on a kind of like micro moment to micro moment scale as yes, well. Exactly. It's got this broad. This is all about the hindrances. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we've got a whole life full of water, a big tank, which is our life. And the only thing that gets in the way are these hindrances. And ultimately, our ultimate aim is they disappear and we just keep siphoning until the end of life, I suppose. Yeah, and you can enjoy. And enjoy you can enjoy. Life. You just pause. <laughs> <laughs> and it really is a matter of attitude. It's that joyful attitude that gives us uh, that that change because otherwise the original one was an attitude of kind of a loser or a victim or uh, loss of power that we don't have control over our feelings that the feelings are there and we don't have any control of them and then the situation gets screwed up almost in the sense of and we've meant humanity has dealt with this for so long and it's called destiny or providence that we wind up seeing how things are going to go because we don't have any way of making any decent changes. Our personality get kind of fixed and we don't have the tools, which means that uh, we can see how things are going to wind up. An example of he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. But the guy who puts the sword down is unlikely to get into sword fights, and therefore he's now unlikely to die by the sword just by putting the sword down. So long so as he's carrying the sword around, he's likely to get stuck. <laughs> so you solidify. You, you, the child ultimately solidifies, and then that becomes destiny. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But it only becomes destiny because we don't know that we can change the destiny, that we yeah. are, in fact, yeah. free from that destiny, yeah. our choice. When we're not making any choices, then the destiny gets set. But when we're out there yeah. making choices, then we can choose our own destiny. So uh, the Buddha was around uh, at the same time as ancient Greek tragedy, which is completely predicated on the idea of uh, destiny and suffering. It's really funny. He should, someone should have told them there was another option. 
There's a guy about a thousand miles over there. He's got another. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah. he's giving us a choice. He's got yeah, a better idea. <laughs> Yeah, there's a new plan, new new way of living. We do not have to live according to the destiny that we were, uh, let us say, that we gave ourselves through the habits that we built up through ignorance when we were children. Mm. That becomes our destiny. But we can go against that destiny and we can do what we want to do, especially in the sense of how we feel. Mm. But we have to let go of that of that self to do so. Because if we hold yeah, on to that, or that old self, that exactly, we created as we kind of came through adolescence and into adulthood, then we that self does have a destiny. That self has like a an arc that they're going to go through. Exactly, the self has the destiny, uh, and the um, the argument then is about free will versus being destined to do something. Do I actually have the free will? And the answer to that is generally people who follow their destiny don't have will. They merely have the destiny and they're following it. But if we're going to have will, that means we have to make our choices. And mm -hmm. by doing that, we have to come out of the old way of doing it and come into a new way and take the right effort to do that. Therefore, this kind of will is not free, it's expensive. Mm. But once it, we pay the price for this will, the expensive part of it, now it's free will. Now we can do as we choose and please, but we can't. it doesn't happen as just all of a sudden it's befallen us. It doesn't come free. Mm. It comes really through doing, Are we really doing what we choose and please? And by that I mean... It's a, uh, if you use the an analogy of a sailing boat, uh -huh. yeah, and yes, I'm getting on my boat in England and I want to sail to the United States of America, yeah, I am still reliant upon those winds and I don't know where they're going to come, when they're going to come. What are you talking about? The wind? Yeah. So, okay. so what, you're relying so, upon a whole lot more than just wind. You're relying upon that boat. You're relying upon yeah, the waves oh, yeah, yeah, the ocean sure. and your and your food yeah. store. And yeah. wow, are you? And in fact, that's a really good way of recognizing how interdependent we are. We this really, is, really are yeah. independent, not dependent at all. And conditions are changing constantly, and we are as free individuals having to adapt in the most appropriate way to those conditions from moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. You just brought up one of my favorite analogies, and that is about the, the sailboat, because there's a distinction between landlubbers and sailors in that the sailors have sea legs to where a new person that has never been on a boat before, when that little, especially uh, in high seas and little boats, they're just all over the place, right? But the experienced sea captain, he can walk around that boat. He can get quite around it. He's got no trouble. Why? Because he's got sea legs. Okay? Now that we understand this quality of sea legs, in the poly, the, uh, the word is called upeka, 
and it's generally translated as uh, equanimity. And in a way, that's what this that's what this captain, this sailor has. He's got the equanimity to walk around that ship or that boat. that's just all over the place. Mm. Mm. So if you have the equanimity, you still have choice, despite how dependent your existence is. But the, but really, yes, exactly, because the, at that point of sea legs, that captain has to be alert to what that boat is doing every fraction of a second. He's totally in tune with causes and conditions. He's really call, it, into those causes and conditions, because that, that boat can do anything. And he's yeah. got to be able to know how it's going up and how it's going down so he'll know yeah. how to take that next step. Yeah. And that's exactly what we need to do in our lives. Yeah. Is to be mindful with every step so that we don't ever lose our balance. But when we do, never mind, get up and come back. <laughs> but this is kind of the end of the scale. In the beginning, it's never mind, start again. But at the end of the scale, this is sea legs now. That we're mindful enough that we don't get caught falling down just because a big roll came. So for that ship and in, in one's individual life, one of those big swells would be like getting arrested. <laughs> That's a big swell. <laughs> And so we have to uh, to learn that we can handle anything. Equanimity means that we can handle anything. And that's why that uh, right attitude is so so powerful in there, is because we know that we can handle anything because we've been on this boat before. We've been in heavy seas before, and we know we can handle it. And so for that means that down that uh, uh, that sea captain, he doesn't have to work so hard to get around that boat. But the new guy who's on the boat, wow, is it so much work for him to get around. <laughs> and so that's a way of explaining it then. That, I, I like that. Thank you for, for bringing that issue of the boat up because it really does have quite an understanding or way of picturing or understanding or the analogy about how can we learn to ride, uh, ride the waves of life? Well, this has been a marvelous talk, guys. We've already gone almost two hours now. <laughs> so, either one of you have any parting words with this? Just thank you both. Much thank appreciate. you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, guys. Love to you. see you again, Matt. You too, Robert. Take it easy. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you, Del Morato. I, I I'm the one that, that won this one. I'm in the hand, I'm the one that's having the most fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really so I have this. to say thank you guys. Thank you. This is such a joy. Go well. Okay, see you. Soon. Bye bye.